Hello, everybody, and welcome to Best Seat on the Couch, the podcast where I trick my friends into watching anime. My name is Alex. I'm Iris. I'm Marcus. And I'm Michael. And today, we are talking about the anime series Madoka Magica. The series was written by Gen Urobochi, directed by Akiyuki Shinbo, and animated by Studio Shaft. The series premiered in January 2011 and was followed up by a direct sequel movie in October 2013. The series follows schoolgirl Madoka Kaname, who is approached by a mysterious life form called Kyubei. Kyubei offers to make a contract with Madoka. It will grant her any one wish, but once it does, Madoka will be transformed into a magical girl and have to fight against witches, beings of concentrated negative emotion that are responsible for misfortunes around the world. As Madoka learns, the world of magical girls is harsh and unforgiving, and Homura, a mysterious transfer student, seems hell-bent on stopping her from forming a contract. She must soon decide if there is anything that is worth the price. Now, I cannot stress this enough, we will be spoiling this show and the movie in its entirety, so if you want an unadulterated viewing experience of this anime, please go watch it now on Netflix. But uh, speaking of viewing histories, I have watched this show a couple years ago in the past, and it's kind of been sitting in my mind as one of these animes that looks like a certain type of genre on its surface, but is completely different once you, once you get in there. I'm, I'm thinking other shows like it would be like Made in Abyss or Evangelion, but the rest of you guys, that is Marcus, Iris, and Michael, you have all watched this show within the past week. So I would love to hear your initial thoughts on this show. <laughs> what did you all think about this show? Well, my full thoughts about this show are longer than this. But at the very least, I want to start with, for our viewers, for our listeners, who, you know, it has just been said, like, if you want a full unadulterated experience, turn back now. Much like Homura, let us convince you not to take the deal before it is too late. <laughs> Turn back now <laughs> while you still have your sanity about you. This show, this show is a lot. This show is a lot. Um, and I, like, full disclosure, I have watched this whole show. I binged it in basically one sitting today. Uh, I'm still kind of reeling from the whole experience. So it's just, wow, wow. I'm going to take my time to collect my thoughts, but, like turn back now <laughs> not really but like you know yeah absolutely um i believe that uh i finished watching the series at least uh last night and uh, i texted everybody else that uh my brain had uh, melted through my ears uh so i hope that you know if that's a good description of what happened to me um and also like after i watched the movie this morning uh my brain kind of phased through the existence of this universe and uh, teleported somewhere else. Um, Much like happens in the show. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, it ascended to a higher plane of being. Um, yeah, I, I will say that, like, like, not only is the show excellently produced, like, and we'll get into this, but like the art direction on the show is is magnificent, to say the least. Um, but the the sort of structure and construction of how this show uh, sort of lays out its you know, core thesis as well as the mysteries surrounding all the stuff that Madoka and, and uh, the girls go through is really finely tuned. I was very surprised that after 12 episodes, th that much stuff happened. Like, you don't get a lot of viewing experiences where, like, I watched, like, it seemed like, I don't know, like seasons worth of content in effectively what would be seen as sort of half a season of stuff it's it's great and i recommend it obviously we haven't spoiled technically anything yet so again this is your second or third warning if you want to watch it now but uh marcus what do you think i mean i mean i feel like if anyone is still listening at this point then they're either very okay to spoil with something spoiled that. on anything or so you know i'm just gonna go ahead and do it Wow, uh, <laughs> I mean, like you got you got everything in this show. You got you got characters turning into goddamn gods. You have you know, uh, like 
people just, you know, essentially despairing themselves into death. Like, it's pretty heavy. There's a lot of really interesting stuff here that, as Michael mentioned, you know, you wouldn't have even seen this coming if you were... I guess the target audience for, like, a shoujo, like, manga would be, like, like a 12-year-old Japanese girl that's into anime. Is that correct, Alex? But, like... Uh, yeah, that's about right. Like, like, like uh, young teens. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously, I don't really consider myself a 12-year-old Japanese girl. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely... I, I, I'm honestly kind of wondering if any, like, actual 12-year-old Japanese girls would be, like interested in the story because it definitely doesn't seem like it was written for them it was it, it hits a lot of hard notes and michael mentioned that the art direction is absolutely spectacular we'll go over that as well but yeah really not much more to add than uh yeah this is a real sleeper of a show definitely worth the watch of, of all the anime this one was not the one i expected to uh have an anime version of joan of arc and Cleopatra show up. In that's that's also big facts. But I saw I mean, that more that, than like, just flashback. those two. I mean, there was. I don't think it was specifically Anne Frank, but it was definitely a girl who yeah, was experiencing right. the Holocaust. There was yes. definitely a shot of a girl like living in, I think, like modern day conflicts in the Middle East. I mean, there was yes. a, a lot of like very sort of real world touchstones. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think so. This show, like, obviously, is very dark, but I, it's it's more than just dark and brooding and depressing like it is brutal in its way but i think it uh achieves something very precise and very difficult it is brutal without being wanton in its display of violence in the in the 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 cruelty and the harshness of the world right i think it's a very hard line to walk i really loved i just i mean the whole conception of the show right and i mean a lot of these ideas right magical girls you know the idea of like emotion becoming magical energy that negative emotion can corrupt and overwhelm right um like a lot of these ideas are not you know invented by the show unique to the show but i think as you say michael they do a lot with a very small amount of screen time everything in this story is so intricately interlocking together it all you know keeps pointing back to itself i think it was an extremely well conceived and well executed show on the whole um like and there's just some fantastic fantastic uh stuff in there i mean the the character arcs which we'll talk about amazing the visual design the visual aesthetics amazing and especially in particular moments i think they made some really bold choices that worked out extremely well for them i mean some of the visual storytelling alex was sitting with me when i uh watched a lot of this and especially in episode 10 the way that they uh you know, do a lot of the framing of different shots to evoke specific moments from prior episodes. Just there's a whole lot of storytelling packed into a lot of the small choices, which is, I think, the hallmark of some of the really greatest shows that we talked about on this podcast so far. And this this show is like right up there with its use of every little detail in its storytelling. So like overall, I think just fantastically well crafted as a, a piece of media, as a, as a narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this show is... A character study at its heart and most specifically I, I don't think we've uh, described what this show looks like quite yet but imagine like a cuter version of Sailor Moon is what the box art looks like but there's a lot of suffering stuffed into these 12 episodes but yeah talking about these characters uh, each so there are five of these magical girls that this show focuses on uh, and we get to learn a little bit about them as the show goes on and follow their own character arcs. And I wanted to get a sense from you guys. What did you think about each of these girls' arc? Uh, which one did you think was uh, the best? Which one really resonated with you, so to speak? That's a, that's a tough question, huh? True. Because, I mean, as you say, so much of this show is, I mean, I don't think I'd ever really, like, put it in those terms in my brain. But I can't find myself disagreeing with you that this show is a character study at its heart, right? That so much of the, the, the stakes and the crux of the, like, action revolves around, like, who these girls are as people, right? And their emotional, like, states of being and how they change according to, like, the traumas that they go through. With that being said, I mean, like, very obviously, you know, this show centers mostly on Madoka 
And, you know, while Sayaka is sort of our kind of number two best friend at the beginning, like it's later sort of revealed, I think, that our like secondary main character is Homura. Um, it's a hard choice to make. I, I, I will uh, pitch in my thing. I think that, first of all, it's a very, very interesting and very risky choice to uh, do what they did with Madoka. So like in the sense that, right, the entire show, Madoka is the one that isn't a magical girl, right? She really only quote unquote becomes a magical girl at literally the very end. And what that did for me, what it was made Homura's episode, episode, that was episode 10, correct? Yeah, yeah, that was. It made that episode so much more impactful for me. Because in that moment where you're like, you know, you, it, you when Homura first sees uh, Madoka and Mami taking care of that witch, it like, it felt like, the like, it felt like we'd actually resolved something in, in a weird way that like, oh my God, Madoka is like, like, like literally at the beginning, if you don't know where it's going, you're just like, oh yeah, I mean, it's like magic girls and stuff, like fight witches, it's going to be fun, collect these grief seeds, like, I don't know, purify darkness and do stuff for good stuff. And so for me, at least, I was longing for like the, like, just become a magical girl, the sort of way that Madoka herself was doing so. And it only, you know, that the, the, that feeling is the thing that is actually twisted through the show. But when you see it in this sort of idyllic version right before everything effectively before everything has happened right homura is just now like becoming a magical girl and and learning things it felt so like it felt so much like paradise that's like it's really the only way i could think about it so i i think that in a way madoka is has one of the really interesting ways that the anime portrays the sort of structure of of being a magical girl through the lens of not being a magical girl, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I, I want to actually agree with you on what you said about it being a bold choice to have Madoka be sort of the one mundane person, right? All this magical potential, but never actually chooses to become a magical girl to make that contract until the very last episode. I think that was a very bold choice, you know? And it, of course, it is sort of this linchpin that so much of the, the conflict rests upon, but... You know, to have sort of our main character, our titular character, even sort of be the not magical girl for so long, I you know is it's not the choice I was expecting them to make. I mean, my my sort of prediction, and I said this like four or five different times to Alex as we were watching the show. You know, like okay, well, this is you know by episode three, I was like, okay, this is a bad idea. They should not become magical girls. It's really a terrible thing for them to do. Kyuubi is manipulating them. It's like very obvious for me to see as an outside observer, but this is a TV show. And so of course, because these are our characters and this is what the story is going to be, of course, they're going to make the deal and become magical girls. Like it just, it's just how that works for there to be a TV show at all. They have to do the magic adventure stuff. And I mean, technically I ended up being right, but like, not really, not like in the way that I anticipated, you know? And I, 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 I think that was like that, the, the choice to stick with that, you know, to stick with this idea that Madoka is not going to become a magical girl until like the very last instant, I think is the reason that so much of the intricacy of this story and so much of the kind of just gut wrenching brutality of some of the twists it takes. That's the reason it worked. So I don't know if I want to say that Madoka is like my favorite air quotes character, but I really do appreciate that the writers of the show, you know, had this vision for the role that she was going to play, this very central role, and stuck to it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that like, I think each of the other magical girls and their eventual demises kind of rep represents, you know, the individual obstacles that Madoka is constantly kind of thinking about in those first episodes when she's deciding whether or not she wants to, you know, sign the contract to become a magical girl. You know, uh, Mommy dies by essentially overestimating the witch that she's fighting. And, like, her entire kind of persona as a magical girl is that she has been doing it for a long time. She serves as, like, a teacher to Madoka and to Sayaka as well. Um... And, like, her, her folly is essentially taking on too much responsibility and trying to protect uh, Madoka and eventually failing in doing so. And then Sayaka's folly, which is extended over a number of episodes, kind of represents that 
the the potential good that can come out of the wish that you make uh, is overall lesser to the amount of despair that will eventually become you and turn you into a witch. Um, and I think all of the all of the pieces that revolve around Madoka eventually allow her to kind of not necessarily become a magical girl out of her own desire to, which is, I guess, what is suggested at the beginning of the show, but out of a duty to, um, and especially as a duty out of a duty to Homura, who in episode 10 is shown to be a lot closer to Madoka than we first think. Um, I'm not really sure there is like a best magical girl. They all, they all serve their own kind of place in the story and they all serve as a facet through which Madoka can kind of ask questions. Madoka herself is basically just a Sayaka-chan and Homura-chan machine for like the first six episodes. <laughs> so like she doesn't do much except serve as essentially like as Iris was mentioning, like she serves as the viewer almost like the viewer is kind of clueless about where this is going to go. And honestly, so is Madoka. She doesn't really know what becoming a magical girl will eventually entail until it is revealed that the immense potential behind her becoming a magical girl is essentially because of Homer. I wanted to, I wanted to add one thing before I move on, which is I actually think I wanted to mention Kyoko for just a second. Um, and the reason I wanted to mention her was because I I went through a journey with Kyoko, right? Like, uh, her whole shtick at the beginning when we meet her is very much so that she's playing the game, right? She's playing the game of being a magical girl. Like, literally, your only purpose is to collect these grief seeds. So why would you ever, you know, kill familiars? Because they're going to become witches and become grief seeds, and you're just going to waste your energy and you know, ah, this is my turf now. You're you're just in brand new magical world. I'll just take you out. And I think that in a sense, she takes a similar journey with Sayaka. Uh, like her and Sayaka are like uh, their their paths in the anime are are very parallel parallel for a lot of a lot of the show. Well, they're famous foils for each other. Like, exactly, as characters and in exactly. Their arcs. And and so and it's really interesting for when Kyoko kind of both diverges and then you know at the end converges with Sayaka's fate that her as a character added so much more to Sayaka's uh you know descent into despair and stuff like that um I thought that was I thought it's really interesting what they did with her especially on her own outlook outlook and backstory about things absolutely absolutely and especially I mean the way that we are sort of set up to at first dislike her right because we don't understand her background her you know motivations her intentions her feelings about being a magical girl but eventually as we learn more and more right there's these kind of clashing ideologies that uh kyoko and sayaka have which eventually you know lead to both of them dying i i said to alex you know <laughs> as that happened like man this brings the number of animated murder suicides i've seen in cartoons <laughs> up to two <laughs> which is not a lot that it's weird that it's happened twice <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think they're, I think they're fascinating characters. I think they both had to be written in the way that they were to suit the other. Um, and also just the, the very briefest point before we move on from this, as far as like who the best character is, air quotes, that's not a choice I'm willing to make, but in our notes, Alex, you phrased this as quote, who is best girl? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and so I'm just here to say Kyoko best girl. And I was, I, was, I was I was gonna say uh, Madoka's mom, best girl. Yes, yes, Madoka's mom <laughs> oh, is best girl. Close no. second, close second. <laughs> okay, okay, that's close, come on, like the little the little like teeth and the yeah. smile. Come on, come on. Also, I want to point out Koyoko is the first anime character in an anime that I've watched that actually has the anime fang thing. I thought that was just a completely like a meme or something. <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah, yeah. The anime fang is real, the real and, like, fang. I'm not a yes. fan, honestly. Welcome. I'm Welcome not going to lie. I thought it was like only a furry thing before this. What? <laughs> Iris, well, like we the, have a the... world to introduce you to. You know what? I'm I mean, wrong. well, that's what this, I mean, we're going to, we're going to get there later yeah, in the episode. Right. Don't you worry, folks. You're totally right. Yeah. Well, uh, well, welcome all. I'm, I'm glad that you've all been indoctrinated into the weeddom. <laughs> Man, it uh, took us like, me. what, less than 20 episodes to get to this point? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, again, speaking about these characters, I, I just think it's so smart how this show was constructed because what better way to learn about a character than to see what they their they wish for, what their heart wants, what they and how they uh, wrestle with that as that wish 
turns into something that they realize that, oh, I did not expect for this to happen. I did not realize how far-reaching this wish goes. I just think it's so, so fascinating and such a great way to explore these characters. Uh, as for me, I don't know if I don't know if I can pick one uh, one of these girls over the other, but I do think Homura has uh, a really compelling journey. It's not a good, it's not a hero's journey over this show and the movie, but from what her character has been built up to be, I think it makes sense. And we'll get into that when we talk about this movie. But speaking of progression, I did want to ask all of you, what did you think of this story's progression from a cute shoujo magical girl uh, anime in like the first, I guess, 10 minutes of the show um, to this show about grief and despair and uh, horrible things happening to these girls. Do you think it was good? How was like the foreshadowing for all of you? Was it paced well, I suppose is what I'm asking. Okay, so yeah, that's that's a very different question because I actually do... I mean, I would want to challenge sort of the assertion that this is at any point ever just sort of a cute, fun, like, magical girl shoujo experience. Like, I mean, for the first 10 minutes, but like, not even for the first 10 minutes, right? I mean, y'all y'all were there in our in our group chat when I posted a screenshot of like eight minutes in and it's a close-up of Homura and she's, it's the, you know, okay, the classic shot with that, the hair over tr- her that's face. That's a trope, and, though. That's a yeah, trope. Yeah, that's a trope. I mean, like, but the point, I mean, the, honestly, the whole construction of that scene right the music was for like i was seriously getting chills already from the music like some shit is about to go down right there was never a moment in which we had the sort of happy like vaguely carefree sort of adventure and magic and friends moment from minute one there was explicit danger from minute one there is explicit sort of this this looming ominous threat going into the future and I mean, I, as far as like, as if you want to like phrase it as like, how was the show paced? I think the show was paced incredibly well. Uh, you know, I, the point I mentioned earlier about the way that violence was present and important, but not oversaturated, not overdone, you know, the way that, you know, these characters sort of the explanation of the kind of like the psychological horror of just the existence of being a magical girl was introduced and then explained and directly and very clearly shown to be sort of uh, Sayaka's downfall. Right. Then the the explanation sort of of Valparaisonact, which, by the way, you know, German word in the anime was very strange. But uh, like the, the, the introduction of this threat and then the explanation, right, that made so many pieces from beforehand slot into place of this sort of time traveling alternate timeline Groundhog Day esque reality. Like, I think all the revelations were paced in a way that made them make sense. And you could see how we were brought to those points. I think that all the character arcs were quick because it was all happening in a short period of time, but it was all believable. It all made sense. There was never a point in which I'm like, I don't think that character would do that. Like, granted, extreme actions, extreme emotions, extreme behaviors, but extreme circumstances led to all of those in a way that totally made sense to me. So on the whole, and I have notes about, I think, the the the, the way the finale sort of concluded. I have notes about, like, the last episode of, like, the TV show run that we can get into more detail later but on the whole, I really think it was paced incredibly well, given how much they had to do in such a short time. Yeah, I, I'll, I, I think you've kind of got most of the meat of what I was going to say. The first thing is that if you, if you haven't watched the movie, which we will discuss later, but uh, there is much more German in the movie. Uh, there is actually some like Nietzsche, like Nietzsche, like like <laughs> philosophy in the background going in there. It's it's pretty wild. Anyways. What is it? What is the deal with anime and like doing a movie adaptation after the show that somehow involves Germany? First, it was Full Metal Alchemist. (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) then it's this. Like, hello. Listen, we got everywhere. Everywhere goes to Germany eventually. Oh my god! I I mean, they they were allies in World War II. Maybe that has something to do. Oh, okay, okay. okay. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to make any you know conclusions that I'm. I mean, is is Germany is German culture is to Japan as Japanese culture is to America? I don't know. Well, that's cursed. it's possible, but say, it's cursed. Yeah, I will say there is a lot of representation, German representation in anime. I don't know where that comes from, but I've seen it a lot. So it's like a thing. Just wanted to let you know. Anime continues to become a wilder and wilder ride as we descend deeper into the madness. Um, 
the second thing I was going to say much was like that in the show <laughs> I, I think it does start out as you know the typical shoujo manga where you know it, it's there's a lot of like schoolgirl kind of interaction there's a lot of kind of minor drama in in especially with uh hitomi and uh whatever the violin boy's name uh who sayako wishes to get better um those elements are still there they serve kind of as the same foundational points that i guess a normal shoujo manga would I, I obviously haven't seen a normal shoujo manga to make that kind of assumption but how how those kind of aspects of the show are then developed into something that can become a lot darker in the sense that you know you're for i guess for a lot of like young girls emotions tend to be kind of an, a big focal point in their lives at that age and in this show emotions become a lot larger than that they become kind of the driving force of the primary kind of uh conflict that spans throughout the the first 12 episodes of the show um and also like the reason why the magical girls like become magical girls it is they fight for their friends and they want to do the things that i guess you know girls that age would want to do it's just it ends up becoming a much more introspective look into the philosophical kind of ramifications of that which obviously is a lot deeper than what i guess a normal 12 year old japanese girl would be watching yeah, I wanted to speak on something, uh, which is I do think that while, yes, basically from the beginning, I, I was sitting in my chair being like, okay, this is going to get fucked up pretty soon, right? Like, this is going to get, <laughs> and then it like, and then uh, I, I would say the first sort of fucked up moment for me, at least, was uh, Mommy's death. And I was like, oh, right, okay, we're getting there. Um, but like, that was only in the second episode. Is that right? Episode three. So three. That's correct. Um, and and so I think, at least in my opinion, I think it does take its time to get there. I do think that yes, the seeds are laid in the beginning, and yes, like you can tell that something's off with Cubay, but at least in my mind, there was still this hope, haha, <laughs> that like none of the bad stuff had to happen, right? And and yes, there was like. Uh, 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 tense moments with Homina and Madoka and obviously, you know, when they first enter the, the witch's labyrinth when they meet Cubit for the first time he's like very strange and very macabre in that sense, but in, at the same time, I think a lot of that was relegated at least for me, to the to the, um, to the anime-ness of the show if that makes any sense, like so much of the art style I think it is is impactful only in hindsight. And the way that I mean that is that when you first see the labyrinth, you're like, oh my God, this is so cool. It's so original. It's so creative. It's so expressive and yet also sort of like creepy. But once you've watched the show, it hits very differently. The sort of art style they use in the labyrinth. And that's what I mean by hindsight that like, Yes, they are foreshadowing all of the trauma and the despair that is going to happen. But it takes its time. And I think that in a way, uh, it's good that it takes its time. Like, if it took too long, it would have taken too long. And if it went immediately into it, there wouldn't be the sort of shock that you were supposed to feel. Um, so that's what I say about the progression of the story. I mean, there's, there's a couple of different ways to sort of like interpret that and i feel like I, I i do agree with what you're saying and i feel like like in sort of my interpretation of the show i would phrase it slightly differently it's that it's not that the show is ever like you know like taking its time like it's intentionally sort of you know being slow it's just i think that it there again there's so much that it does so much ground that it covers so much character development that happens in such a short period of time that the fact that it doesn't rush anything makes it feel leisurely yes right things still happen extraordinarily quickly by sure. a lot of standards you know by just a lot of objective measures right you know episode one starts off with you're like oh you know i we're we're all going to school and there's the new girl and you know she's kind of weird but and then like episode 10 we're talking about like time travel and the heat death of the universe and you know like the inevitable like cursed destiny of all those who have hope like <laughs> 
objectively, Bruh. this show covers a lot of ground. It just never like forces anything to go faster than we can intake it. Absolutely. And so, which I think gives it sort of that, you know, like calm, reserved sort of semblance to it. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. also, like, I, I, I do just want to like make sure we take a moment to sort of just touch on the, the art style of. Yes. The, Thank you, Iris. I was about to. Yeah. Touch were on you that. about to? Were you about to go into that exactly? Because that, no, I mean, yeah, that for me was like a big a like little... wow for the visual design of this show. Yeah, let's do a quick dive into the art direction of this show, uh, because I do want to leave enough time to discuss the ending of the show and then the movie. But uh, yeah, I think the show does a really good job on kind of giving an unsettling quality to the entire show, whether that be through the witch's labyrinth or through those really choice shots of Cubay. Like, whatever Cubay is doing, I feel is unsettling i, I want to i want a wallpaper of just cubay's eyes like this. Yeah. <laughs> that that shot appears like 15 oh times in the movie alone it's crazy i mean it's yeah, like but... it's it's like the sleep paralysis demons right you know you wake up and you know you're about to die because you just see this in your face yeah but uh, i think i think yeah if we want if we want to talk about the art direction of the show just look at the many screenshots or gifs of uh whenever cube is on screen because i know he's supposed to look cute but the instant you first see him you're like something's wrong with this cat fox thing right yeah 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 i mean for me the big sort of and i mentioned this a second ago the big standout uh I guess recurring theme was like the the aesthetics of the labyrinths, right? And the the way that reality gets distorted inside them. Uh, I think it's really incredible how they sort of, I mean, I, I guess I'll phrase it as how they weaponize this uh, dissociation, this 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 um, discord between artistic styles, in order to create a sense of unease, of wrongness in the world. That something about this universe is you know being broken down in a fundamental way. And I mean. Like, first of all, just the fact that there's, like, such clashing art styles, right? That the, the, the girls themselves are, like, just the normal animation. And then in the background, we have all this, like, random nonsense. I mean, there are a bunch of different, like, takes that I saw. Like, there was some some animation of these labyrinths and the witches in them that, you know, was kind of, like, rubber hose sort of animation. Some of it was evocative of, like, pop art, like Andy Warhol, like, collage-style stuff. I mean, some of it was just this really, uh, like, the puppets one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, it was it just... And the thing was, I think there's two parts of it. One is that, you know, these art styles were clashing so much. And two is just that the the way that these labyrinths themselves were drawn were evocative of so much, like, kind of creepy, uncanny valley sort of stuff, right? The, the, the like, pastel, like, hospital stuff, syringes and, and, you know, interspersed with candy. That's uncomfortable. The sort of rubber hose, sort of cutesy, old-timey animation of this big, scary monster with teeth that, you know, sort of, you know has fun waving about before it you know chomps off mommy's head i mean the the i i think it was just an incredibly bold and incredibly effective use of branching out from the norms of sort of the visual aesthetic we normally get in an anime like this i want to add um the one labyrinth in which sayaka first kills her first witch right when we first see her kind of descent into despair mm-hmm. as she like you know mm-hmm. continues to like hammer on the witch that the way that they showed that scene was so cool like everything silhouetted out and like effectively like the labyrinth is casting shadows on everything in there but you still recognize who they are and you like see even further sayaka sort of eyes descending into that kind of madness and only when the labyrinth begins to disappear does the sort of detail and color return to her. And then you see her covered in blood. It was really, really cool. Yeah, and I would also say that one of the other really cool kind of art things that the show did, and this is especially uh, prominent in the movie, is whenever Homura stops time, there is Mm -hmm. this filter that's kind of put over the background where it, it looks almost like... It looks like a photograph. It looks like it is literally a snapshot in time, which, like... There is a, for Iris's sake, there is a battle kind of halfway through the movie between Mami and Homura. And Homura is constantly stopping and starting time as they are both essentially firing their weapons to each other. And you see the bullet trails, they kind of, they appear and then they stop as, you know, time has started and stopped again. And it's 
at, at, at the kind of the climax of the fight, Homura finally starts time again and all the bullets just kind of explode at once. It was an excellent scene. That entire fight sequence is legendary. That was an awesome fight. Like, there is just so much attention, I think, brought to a lot of techniques in animation that you wouldn't necessarily see, I think, as Iris mentioned, in an anime. Like, uh, especially an anime of this caliber. Like, these are this is some real kind of emotionally evocative shit. And, like, it doesn't seem like it would belong in an anime, but, boy, does it really fit when you kind of see... When it when it is displaying the kind of real emotional moments on screen, like you know that that was you know the right decision to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I've only seen uh, one other show do this kind of multimedia style, and that's uh, Mob Psycho. But it's a completely yes. different show than Madoka Magica, and I think both shows use that multimedia uh, in really great ways to sort of highlight each individual show's strength. Well, one last thing I do want to mention about the art direction is I've only really noticed this uh, when I was watching it again with Iris. But Iris, you were talking about how like, oh, this this school doesn't look like a typical Japanese school. Or like, man, these hospitals are really big. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. I, I just noticed that this whole world that they're in is desolate. There's no one around. Like, in any one scene, you would only see, like, a couple of characters. And it gives a sort of emptiness and foreboding feeling uh, over the entire show that, again, I don't think people really recognize. Uh, Maybe your subconscious does, but it's just there. And it's really unsettling once you realize how few people there are in each individual scene. I actually noticed that too. I mean, there are a lot, there's so many big open outside spaces that were empty. And I mean, the, the, the one that really sort of jumped out to me was all the times they're in, I think it's the same park even, but there's like one park area where there's like the fountain and the benches and like so many times there's like them like wandering around late at night in that one park. And it's just empty. There's no one else around. You know, the scene on the train where Sayaka confronts the, the two, you know, assholes, uh, just them three on the train like so many scenes in like train yards and like industrial like processing plants and just like yeah, why was madoka looking for these... sayaka on a train track <laughs> yeah exactly but i mean that's where she finds sayaka yeah, exactly. so like i mean who's the real dummy here right sure. it's just you know there's a a real emphasis on just this like feeling of emptiness which I think kind of has this, I mean, as you say, like uh, like a sort of subconscious evocative nature that really draws out, I think, this this feeling of loneliness that is like so central to this experience of being a magical girl. Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right. Now, let's dive into the ending of the show and the movie. Now, Iris, you have something to say, and I would like to give the floor to you. And, I uh, do. We- yeah, go ahead. I well, so and I I I want to start with this because I sort of briefly mentioned this right before we started recording, and I kind of have a a um, a, a a a thing to posit to to the group. I am vaguely dissatisfied with how the big threat of Valpar Disnacht was handled. You know, like sort of the beginning of the twelfth episode. Like, I think the sentiment is beautiful of Madoka wishing to, you know, take the fate of every magical girl away and have them, you know, transcend instead of becoming witches. I think the scenes that we got with, uh, you know, um, her getting to show uh, Sayaka the uh, violinist perform, right? This sort of wish fulfillment and you know the like kind of tender goodbye in the void between uh, her and Homer. I loved those scenes, but I think the way that they sort of, I'm going to make this wish, and then the big threat, you know, the danger, sort of the driving force behind everyone's decision-making, the thing that has caused Homer to have to go back in time so many times is just sort of like, that's it, it's gone, because she made the right wish, you know? And I think a lot of this has to do with the way that the magic system is presented. And we've talked before about, you know, the distinction between hard magic versus soft magic systems, right? And this is a very brief reminder, if you've forgotten, a hard magic system is one with, like, very clearly defined rules, very clearly defined limitations for what magic can and cannot do. And a soft magic system is more hand-wavy, more just like, you know, this is magic and it does cool things and you don't know exactly, like, the mechanics of it. 
despite all the discussions of like these are the soul gems and these are the grief seeds and this is what a magical girl is and there's the contract and despite all the sort of the pseudoscientific this is entropy and this is the heat death of the universe and we have turned emotional energy into real energy to you know give us energy to save the universe like despite all that the magic system in this show is very soft and I think that for me is the source of this sort of dissatisfaction with sort of using magic to hand wave away this big threat you know there's a there's a sort of there are many sort of ideas about like the differences between hard and soft magic systems and the ways that it can be used. But I think one of the most commonly agreed upon is that, you know, the, the ability that you or, or the, the level to which audiences can like easily accept magic, getting people out of problems is directly proportional to how well they understand the rules. That's you know, Brandon Sanderson's uh, first law, by the way. That is Brandon Sanderson's first law. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that. Thank we you. We simp um, for Sanderson as always. <laughs> we simp for Sanderson as always, right? So for me, for me, that principle is at play here because it doesn't, like, the characters certainly with their struggle, with their trauma, with their choices, with their sacrifices, I feel have earned their happy ending. And I don't know that the narrative earned the ability to just sort of wave away the threat with such ease. I want to be clear before I before I let go of this very, very long speech. I want to be clear that I don't think the ending is bad. I really liked the ending to the show. I just think it's there's this big problem that is wiped away too quickly for me to fully accept. That's my oh. that's my statement, that's my pitch, that's my posit. So please right. tear it apart. That's a good take. Honestly, I somewhat agree with you. There was a moment at the end, and it was a moment, and I'll talk about why the moment faded. But there was a moment where I was like, huh. And not in a good way. But for me, the reason that that moment faded was because of a realization. I think that up until episode 10, Valpurgis Noct is the sort of, you know, the looming threat. The thing that, you know, Homura keeps turning back time for. But I think after watching episode 10... Valpurgis Noct was already dealt with. The threat wasn't a real threat. The real threat was Homura. And here's what I'll say. Right? They explain why Madoka has all this ma- this enormous magical potential surrounding her. Right? It is because uh, Homura has turned back time so many times... For this one person that, as in their words, all the threads of fate are wrapped around Madoka and are imbuing her with this, like the potential of gods, essentially. And in episode 10, they literally show, right, the, the literally, uh, it's, it's the cycle that was right before the current cycle. And indeed, the one that opens the show of Kyube saying like, Wow, I didn't think that Madoka could just take care of Valpurgis not in one shot. Damn. But now she's a witch that's like 10 times as powerful and she's going to wipe out the earth in 10 days. And I think to me, that signaled that Valpurgis Noct was the sort of perhaps the original source of tension and threat, but in a sense was never really the big thing. The big deal was always Homura trying to never come to terms with the fact that she can never save Madoka, right? They say in the show, once Homura acknowledges that there is nothing she can do to save Madoka from her fate, then that's when she turns into a witch, right? That's when her despair kicks in. And her fight is trying and trying and trying to save her over and over and over again. And in the end, it's Madoka who saves herself. And I think that that in and of itself was satisfying to me. One, because you're right that the magic system is soft. And I think that the reason is soft is because of the wish. Like, yes, you get a wish. But the, you know, the sort of mythos surrounding what a wish can do, what it does do sort of twists that a wish can have is very soft and is you know represented in in all tons of different media as being the sort of soft like be careful what you wish for type thing and i think that 
if the movie had ended like now everything's fine then i think that i would have also been dissatisfied but because the movie ended with a different universe with a different set of rules right the law of the cycles and now like instead of fighting wishes they're fighting wraiths and cube itself is like huh that thing about wishes that 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 that's an interesting notion shame we can't ever test that that in and of itself meant that her wish had agency and it did something it didn't fix everything but it changed a lot and then you know we'll get into the movie and on the, on the repercussions and ramifications of that choice but um i think that ultimately i was satisfied with the movie for that reason and i want to i want to quickly just jump in right before mark says anything um the one line that is that was my favorite line that i, I that uh I, I want to say um that really hit home not only when it was said but also in hindsight was said by Bay in episode 10, which is, um, so if you ever feel like dying for the sake of the universe, please call me anytime. I think that in context, it was powerful and also funny, but from hindsight, it was like, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I mean, you're not entirely wrong. Yeah. Anyway, Marcus, and, I know you have something to say. Yeah, the the other what I want to kind of because I think I'm mostly in agreement with Michael in the sense that I there is a somewhat a, a, a small sense of agreement with the sense that the ending is like a little disappointing. But what Michael really what Michael said about episode ten, another important thing about that episode is that the conflict becomes centered around stopping the cycle of magical girls. That is that's when the you know Alpargis not no longer is no longer kind of the the foreboding doom that is introduced in the very first minutes of episode one. It's, you know, even if all purchase not is destroyed, which is established in episode 10, when Madoka, you know, one shots it essentially like the fact is that Madoka becomes a witch, more magical girls can still come to Bay and like maybe save the earth before it gets destroyed. I mean, the, the like ceiling of the power level for Madoka as a witch is never really established, but it's assumed that the world just ends up ending and, Cubay's race abandons humans but once the once the kind of conflict becomes stopping that stopping the ability to become a magical girl and you know essentially rewriting history so that magical girls don't exist anymore that was where I thought it was going like I thought Madoka's wish was going to be that magical girls no longer exist witches no longer exist and Cubay's race no longer meddles with humans that's where I thought it was going the fact that it didn't go there definitely did disappoint me in some way because, you know, the overall axis of the conflict still exists. There are now wraiths instead of witches and, you know, witches do get saved from their eventual fate by Madoka instead of becoming witches. So that is good for the magical girls after they die and it is good for the world as a whole. But Hamura especially is still embroiled in this conflict that for all intents and purposes, she has to take on alone. Um, but you have to, like, once you understand how the movie goes and, you know, where the movie kind of builds upon, and as Michael said, shows you the consequences of Madoka's final wish, you know, it becomes more believable that they chose that ending so that they could kind of write more about where that was going to take the universe, uh, in the events of the movie. Whereas I think if there was perhaps a more stereotypically satisfying ending, I don't think a movie would have really ne actually been necessary to kind of add on to the end of the series as a whole. Yeah, and I definitely think the fact that I, you know, didn't get a chance to like, I mean, I've read the summary, but I didn't get a chance to actually watch the movie, I think definitely does play into sort of my interpretation of the ending of the original show. I do want to just sort of respond to your point about sort of the role that uh, Walford just knocked plays as a threat and i'm not you know I, I i never meant to be like you know the fact that she's taken care of so easily you know is a problem like that of course was established earlier right you know they literally as you say they literally like tell us oh yeah you know once madoka was a magical girl she took it out, out in one shot but at that point it's established that the danger is not the destruction of Valpar just knocked it's the fact that you know doing so creates an even worse problem you know, the fact that there's no way to do so without losing everything in the process because Madoka becomes, you know, this world-ending, you know, mega-witch. I think at that point, 
the fact that, you know, Madoka gets to sort of just make a wish and then become a magical girl, but because she made the right wish, the consequences never show up, I think is what was really throwing me. Because all through the show, right, the whole theme is like, what are you willing to pay for what you want? What are you willing to, to give up for what your dream is? And constantly, over and over, right, it's sort of like an equivalent exchange type thing. It's like the level of hope and joy and good that you bring into the world with your wish has to be matched by the level of despair and sadness and grief that eventually you accumulate afterwards. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when the, in sort of the earlier, you know, abortive timelines, that makes sense. Madoka wishes to save the world and then ends the world as a consequence of having saved it. In this latest timeline, it feels like that rule is kind of just sort of like forgotten. Madoka makes this massive wish to, you know, end all the suffering of all the magical girls. And there's no, like, turnaround. Like, like suddenly that is the miracle that gets to come true. And, like, I realize that that's the, like, intent of at least sort of that point in the storyline. And I, I totally buy, like, I totally, like, am, I'm more than, like, or rather, like, not even surprised that sort of the turnaround, right, the the... the the just desserts, I guess, air quotes of the system sort of come back to get Madoka in the movie. But without that context, it really does sort of feel like this whole, you know, you get the good and then you get like double the bad sort of system of wishes gets broken. I think that was sort of my, my complaint at the time. And one, one last thing I'll add is that I really like your take because Homura kind of shares the same outlook. And that is kind of what drives the movie is that, you know, Homura's wish was to save Madoka. And Madoka, in making her wish, doesn't allow that to happen. If Madoka transcends herself into godhood, does Homura get, like, her wish satisfied? And the oh, answer God. is no. The answer is absolutely no. And I'm sure Alex will have a little bit of time to discuss it. But that's where there's the movie so much comes to in. unpack just there. This is like, this is the real sort of mind melter, like, yeah. like thought yeah. process right here. Yeah, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm super glad. I'm super glad you both brought up this uh, uh, this concept because, yeah, the movie explores because Madoka, by making this wish, she is able to bring a lot of hope into this world. But all of that despair is concentrated into Homura because she is the only one who realizes that Madoka is gone and her whole, like, state of being like you said marcus was to try to save her from a fate of despair and she can't do that when madoka is like literally taking on all of the despair of all magical girls uh and that's what the movie explores uh and so real quickly uh michael and marcus having watched this movie i wanted to get a quick uh i wanted to delve into your thoughts real quickly about what you thought of the movie and um the movie's shall i say ending the <laughs> last 10 minutes it's a big this twist, is important this yeah. is important for me especially because i've only read the summary and i have questions <laughs> yeah um i guess i'll start I, I think that my thoughts on the movie were like again as i said after watching the series my brain had, had melted out my ears but after watching the movie my brain kept going um I think that one, it does a good job of uh, like accelerating and progressing what happened at the end of the show. Like, like it didn't ignore anything. Like it was very, it was very clear that the movie was an integral part of the story that it was meant to be there. It didn't feel tacked on, at least in my opinion. Second. So when we see Homura, um, you know, kind of, or not Homura specifically, but all the five magical girls sort of living this uh, idyllic existence, right? This this almost felt like the paradise that was in my head. That like, oh, you know, they're magical girls and they're fighting together. There's no reason to fight each other because all you have to do is like make a cake with the nightmares and they go away, right? I, I wasn't completely sure on what they were doing there. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess they're making a pretty good cake. Um and also, like, it seemed pretty clear, like, that the magical girls and the nightmares, or at least their familiars, were kind of integrated together with Bebe and Mommy, Mommy and stuff like that. And 
in the same sense, it has that sort of slow burn aspect to it, where Homura slowly figures out that they're trapped in this city, that this isn't real, that this is almost like a witch's labyrinth, right? We see her journey of like, is it you, baby? Like, you, you, I remember you, you're the one that killed mommy. Um, and we see her kind of go through this journey of realization and also at the same time acceptance. And I think that what it did really well was that once Homura realizes that this is her labyrinth, right? That when she, and, and she becomes the witch and she realizes what Kyubei and the rest of their, their species is trying to do, then that's when it like it that it, it almost like it becomes personal because yes her wish was to save Madoka from despair but what Kubei and their species is doing they're tr they're saying like yeah I I realize you mentioned this Madoka figure that's really interesting let's test that and then they test it right like can we see if we can break the law of cycles or if we can if we can control this Madoka the girl and if we can harness that energy because of course they would try they already did in a different universe and i think that in and of itself it felt really satisfying to me at least for it to go through that arc as a sort of continuation of what the sort of uh lore and the journey that this anime was taking was going towards yeah and the other obviously that's that aspect of it is kind of the resolution for Cubay species and the resolution for homer as a witch in the sense that you know that ending i am really satisfied with Cubay's species essentially gets their just desserts they have their universe rewritten essentially twice yeah. by two you know law changing wishes and they end up becoming they end up becoming like the the magical girls in the sense that they are now responsible and taking care of all the world's problems and out behind the scenes well so that i all am happy with but i'll do this for iris's sake i was not happy with the res resolution of homura and madoka which is obviously that one part of the summary that you read where homura rips human madoka out of god madoka and rewrites the universe a second time this time homura as the god entity she calls herself a demon um, and how she is kind of the representation of evil uh, in the world, born out of the love for Madoka. Um, my comments on that are that I really... The, the main problem I have with that is that it doesn't really seem to make sense uh, that human Madoka could be separated from god Madoka. I think the decision to kind of transcend Madoka into this god figure was good enough in that in the sense that you know, she is gone. She is done. Like, her fate is sealed, and now she burden. you know, she has to kind of shoulder the burden of all the witches that die. And that was my question number one, right? Like, the, the mechanics, right? I mean, again, we're back to the sort of the hard versus soft magic systems and, like, what you can justify, what the audience will be okay with you doing. But, like, the fact that she can just be like, oh, nope, undo your, your ascension to godhood like sort of like it feels like to me pulls away a lot of the impact of Madoka's sacrifice and Madoka's, Madoka's decision and the whole heartfelt goodbye that Madoka and Homer have. So that's, that was my first sort of like note. And what I have to say to that is that once you look at it from the sense of the fact that Homer is able to rip Madoka out of God Madoka is that kind of legendary, like the entirety of the despair that she has born out of her love for Madoka, which is, born out of the fact that she could not resolve her wish in the last episode of the series is what gives her that power to do so. I think that's what the directors were intending when they gave Homer essentially the chance to rewrite the universe again. Like you wouldn't have thought that there was a second source of immense kind of magical potential that Michael had mentioned earlier um, that could cause that to happen. But when you look at it as, you know, Homer's love for Madoka and then eventual despair of having to be the person that only knows of a Madoka from the previous universe. You know, all of that positive energy and all of that negative energy is what is trapped in her soul gem, which is what allows her to do that, I guess. 
I have a, I have, I have, I have a somewhat different take. I don't think that I was dissatisfied with it. I think that I was either uh, apathetic about it, or I actually kind of liked it. And the reason I think so is because I, at least for me, it, it was. I think this is a very personal thing. Like I don't like. I I completely understand both of your points, and they're very good points. For me, I was in a state. <laughs> I was like, sort of like thinking, like, oh my god, so much shit just happened that I kind of accepted. So I will agree. It doesn't make sense that Homura was could be able to do that. It kind of detracts from Madoka's choice, but. I think that, in a sense, it reinforced the sort of shtick they were trying to go with with Homura. Um, because, af- after all, right, like, near at the end of the movie, Homura herself, being in, in which form, is, you know, saying, like, no, I have to die here. Like, you, like, I, you, you shouldn't rescue me, right? Like, uh, all the stuff with with Kyubei and stuff like that of of trying to witness Madoka um, doing the Law of Cycles uh, with uh, with Homura. That like I felt like I almost didn't want a happy ending. Like, and I'm not saying that it wasn't not a happy ending. <laughs> what I what I, and and I'm not saying that the ending that we got kind of took a meandering path to get there. But I think that ultimately I would have been disappointed more if, you know, Homura dies finally free from her anguish and she accepts that she can no longer have Madoka. I thought it was honestly really interesting, to me at least in a good way, that Homura did not give up and in a way succumbed to her greed. Or her selfishness. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, right? But I'm saying that it's endemic to her character, regardless of whether or not we think it's satisfying or not. And that's what I say with that. Again, I'm I'm a little lost for words with how to describe that ending, but I think that's ultimately where I stand. And so you've actually like veered directly into sort of my second big like note about at least what I've read of the movie, which is it feels like what's being described, at least to me, feels out of character for for Homer as she is in the original sort of uh, t- like TV run. You know, because uh, I, like you 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 said this earlier, Michael, and I sort of wanted to push back on it at the time, but we sort of glossed over it that Homer is a selfish character, right? That it is it is her you know, intervention that causes Madoka to have so much potential, to have such like a a cursed karmic fate bound to her. And I honestly cannot find myself agreeing with that, you know, because I mean, partially it's a thing of ignorance, right? Homer had no idea what she was doing until the very, very last timeline. And then was like, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to make, I've already made this worse enough without knowing I'm not going to do that to my friend anymore. I found it really hard to ascribe like selfishness to the, the willing, like reliving of this like hellish month over and over and over. I find it like, I just, I don't see that. I don't see a selfish quality in that. Um, the show, I, w- I will say like, it feels like I understand like the, the, the movie expands on it in a good way, but the ending of the show feels like it is a conclusive ending in its own right. You know, like there has been a shift in the balance of the universe and there's a bittersweetness. Madoka is gone. All that home we are fought for is, you know, not there anymore, but that there's a new order and, you know, still battles to be fought, but the main threat is passed and that Homura, you know, like takes to it with a, you know, a, a grit in her eye and a steely resolve and she's bittersweet, but she's still going to fight the fight because she still believes that that has to be done. You know, there's none of Homura's arc in the original show to me suggests the kind of selfishness that, the, that she then displays in the movie. And that I think is part of what makes it feel so jarring for me and it it's totally could be something that you know when i do watch it will become more clear for me but it's it's sort of hard to accept just on face value that it's really the same character it feels inconsistent yeah my my final take on that is that i think the movie definitely tries to do more to establish that madoka's love for or rather homura's love for madoka in the series is that selfishness like 
what they try to suggest is that Hamura Hamura's like you know having to go through that month over and over and over again you know basically pumping Madoka up to biblical levels of power is done out of her love for her and like her desire to see her get the ending that she so deserves because Madoka is is essentially the best character like the nicest the kindest hearted character in the series and I think what the directors were going for is that Homura's selfishness gets the better of her in that conclusion where like she no longer can let go of Madoka like she's essentially put her on that pedestal and that is what causes her to make that decision to go against what looks very dutiful in the series but I think is actually born more out of selfishness than it is out of the out of a desire to see the conclusion resolved and I know that like it doesn't necessarily look that way I don't think it's done perfectly but I think you can look at it that way and see maybe I I, I agree with that yeah I totally I I see it I I think I understand it and I think the ideas in and of themselves can work I guess it's just in context and for this character and for the arc that she had based on what I've seen I guess I just don't buy it I, I do think that the movie does flesh it out a little bit so that that could be what you're saying but I ultimately agree with both of you that like it wasn't done as well as it could have done. Moral yeah. of the story? Uh, watch the movie, Iris. Watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I, no, I just you know want to have a couple days to like emotionally recover. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to slip in my two cents here. Uh, Homura did nothing wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nothing wrong. <laughs> but uh, I, I'd like to argue that, I mean, yeah, it can be seen either that Homura is like, selfless in the way that she's looking out for Madoka. She cares about Madoka so thoroughly, but she's also selfish in the way that she only cares about Madoka and kind of wants Madoka for herself. I mean, she was ready to kill Sayaka because Sayaka was going to turn into a witch and that would be like super scarring to Madoka. But I I do think uh, there... Remind me if I'm... Tell me if I'm wrong, Michael and Marcus, but... I think it's implied in the movie that this world that Homura has created uh, for Madoka to live a sort of quote-unquote normal carefree life is fragile. Like there are hints that Madoka will eventually break free and then the two will have to fight one another yeah. or something like that. The law of cycles will return. and one of, the, will... one of the final notes that Homura makes is that, you know, she recognizes that Madoka doesn't know her past, but she will eventually. And because they are both these kind of godly beings in this world now, they will have to be at odds because, you know, Homura ripped Madoka away from her self kind of what the fate that she brought upon herself. So that is kind of the suggestion in terms of like an open end for the end of the movie. And thus yeah. God and Satan were born. <laughs> well, I mean, that's my question. Like, does it ever really end? Is it just going to be an, an infinite you know, back and forth volley between hope and despair, between, you know, good and evil, between selflessness and selfishness. You know, I think that is the question that they wanted to ask. And they I mean, ask yeah, them. is that the mythos that the, the the ultimate conclusion of the story wants to leave us with? Yeah. I, I like to think of it that Homer is just giving Madoka a nice vacation from <laughs> all of that despair. Oh, oh, oh boy. <laughs> but, um... Uh, unfortunately, that'll do it for us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this week's YouTube video, I tried to find a lighthearted one. Uh, so this one is called Coda. Uh, so go check it out uh, if you need a little bit of a pout cleanser after watching Madoka Magica and the movie. Uh, but once again, thank you all so much for listening. And you will hear from us next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye, everyone.